Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. And then turning to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, <clears throat> to chapter 6. I will read the verses 12 through 20. First Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral a person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So far the reading of God's holy word. I was asked to listen with you this afternoon to the Confession of Lord Day 41. You can follow the reading on page 556 in the Book of Praise. Question 108. What does the Seventh Commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. 
We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and, uh, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you pay attention to the music of our culture or to the magazines of our day, when you see what the TV offers and what the movie screen advocates, then you know it for sure. The world celebrates what the Lord in the seventh commandment condemns. Our culture says sexual promiscuity, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, it is all normal, natural, wonderful. But the Lord says it is sin, it is evil, it is an abomination. See, the seventh commandment is light. And it shows us the light of the Lord. But the mind of the world is darkness. It hates the light. It has no room for the light of the Lord. See there, the complete opposition, the enmity between the two. But the enmity is not only between what it is the seventh commandment requires and what it is the people of the world practice. It goes deeper. When you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you cannot, help, you cannot fail to hear him say that this command, see, it touches upon our thoughts and our desires. He says, those thoughts and those desires which seem so natural and come seemingly automatically, they stand condemned. The seventh commandment, says Jesus, it convicts you, us, of adultery. And see, when the Lord then applies the seventh commandment to the desires that are deep inside us, that are part of us, see, then he means to draw us and to drive us to himself that he wants to lead us to repentance, that he wants to, us to ask of him that he cut out such thoughts and such desires from our life. Then you understand, the seventh commandment is not only a word of conviction and condemnation, it is also an invitation to new life, in Jesus Christ. It is an invitation to experience life as the Lord our God meant it to be. 
And as it, as it can be, as it was restored to be in Christ. But now, to help us to understand what it is the Lord forbids in the seventh commandment, and why, and what it is he requires of us in this commandment, we will look at this law word against the, the background of what it is the Lord teaches us about marriage. I want to speak on marriage, God's gift to man, mankind. I have three thoughts. The Lord ordained it. Man destroyed it. Christ redeemed it. First of all then, the Lord ordained it. Did you ever notice? When the New Testament talks about marriage, why then invariably it points back to the Old Testament, to the way it was in the beginning. For example, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, see, then Jesus said to them, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That is, let not man separate, tear apart. When the, when the Pharisees then responded by saying to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? She then, Jesus says, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, but from the beginning it was not so. So also the Apostle Paul, when writing to the church at Ephesus about marriage, points back to, be, to the beginning. Like Jesus, Paul too quotes from the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You can't miss it. Genesis chapter 2 reveals the origin of marriage. And there we learn also about the meaning of marriage. You know, of course, that refrain from Genesis chapter 1. God, having looked at what he had made each day, said it again and again, it is good. But in Genesis 2, we read that God saw something that was not good. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. You can't miss it. That stands out. There was, after all, something that was not as yet the way the Lord God wanted it to be. God saw, that is, 
he calls attention to the fact that Adam was alone. And see, that is something God did not want. That's not right, said God. After all, Adam's aloneness underscored his incompleteness. Adam had no helper suited to him. Oh yes, the Lord himself alerted Adam to that fact, remember, when he brought the animals to him in pairs, male and female, to see what he, Adam, would call them. Adam could not fail to notice it. For each male animal, there was a female. Each animal had its counterpart, its partner, its partner. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper. Adam was alone. He was incomplete. Adam, you could say, was half a pair. Adam needed another, a partner, to make him complete. Remember in Genesis 1.27 it is recorded, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created him. Ah yes, male and female together form the image that is Male and female together constitute the image of God. Without the female, without the woman, the man was incomplete. Well, you know the story. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, the Lord took one of of the man's ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You understand? The Lord presented the woman, Isha, to the man, Ish, as his marriage partner. The Lord God himself performed the first wedding ceremony. And Adam, it says, ah, Adam, seeing the woman, immediately recognized her as like him, as belonging with him. He knew this, this is the partner, the helper I need. This one is the other half of the pair. You hear that in Adam's song of jubilation. This, he sang, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. The first point I want to underscore, therefore, is this. Marriage was ordained of God. It is good. It is from the beginning. 
from before the fall into sin. And see, that tells us that marriage was not established by God as a means for us to handle our sinful nature. Neither was its number one purpose the survival of the human race. Rather, God ordained marriage and gave it to man as something good and as necessary to complete man. You could say, when God ordained marriage, he completed his creation of man. Moreover, God made the woman a helper fit or suitable for the man. Notice, the Lord fills the incompleteness of Adam, not, oh no, not by adding a hundred others, or fifty, but one. And he doesn't then add another man. He created a woman, one woman to complement one man, not a trio, but a pair. And notice, not two of the same sex, but one of each. Oh, you know, and I know, that Satan seeks to undermine that, to destroy that. But it cannot be denied, there are two sexes, two genders, two kinds of people. And that is not a coincidence, such as God's purposeful design. See, contrary to all that the state, especially in Canada, would foist upon us herein by means of heinous legislation and court decisions that are an abomination, marriage is not just any covenant relationship between people irrespective of their gender. It is the Lord who ordained marriage, not man, not mankind. And see, the Lord says this, this is the very essence of marriage. The marriage partner, the helper who is suitable for the man, is the woman. When you then look back at Genesis 2, you are struck by the closeness, the intimacy of the union of the husband and the wife. Adam, seeing the woman, remember, said, She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And see, that was literally true. The woman indeed came from the man. She was made from his bone. And in marriage, God says, I take what was one, what I had subsequently made into two, I take what was one and I put them back together again. Then Moses writes, this, this is the foundation of marriage. Here lies the reason for marriage. See, because it was not good 
for the man to be alone. Because the man was incomplete without the woman. Because God took a rib from Adam and made a woman of it and brought her to the man. Ah yes, it is for that reason. Because the Lord God made the woman a helper suitable to man. Because she completes him. Because she was taken from him. Because the Lord God joined them together. Yes, it is for that reason that a man leaves his father and his mother. And cleaves to his wife and becomes one flesh with her. And Jesus would later underscore that. See, they are no longer Two, but one flesh, he said. God has joined them together. God made them one. Oh, no doubt, there are other relationships between people. Contracts, covenants that have some similarity with the marriage relationship. But that in, no, that in no way changes the fact that marriage is absolutely unique. It is of one kind. That's what those words, the two have become one, underscore. See, there, the meaning of marriage. Two people, one flesh. But what does that mean? Well, it means that two people come to one purpose, one set of priorities, one mind. It means that they are willing to set aside their personal, their individual aims and desires and commit themselves to aims and desires they have in common. It means that they no longer seek the meaning or the purpose of their lives apart from each other. It means that they exchange their two individual lives for one common life. They become one, not only physically, but spiritually. They become mutually dependent on each other. Because, you see, it is God's intention that in marriage, a man and woman be, become selfless. In marriage, as God ordained it, two people live for each other. They have one heart and one mind. They love each other and are thoughtful and considerate of each other. They freely surrender their individual existence because they know neither of us is complete, whole, without the other. And see, the Lord gave the husband and his wife a way of expressing their oneness, their unity, in an intimate and physical way. That is the sexual relationship. It is a physical expression of their self-surrender, of giving themselves to each other. 
It is a physical way of saying what the husband and his wife also say in every other way, in thoughts, words, and deeds. We are one. Well, with that, I move on to the second thought. Man destroyed it. See, the Lord God had made, has made us sexual beings. Surely that is understood today, right? And see, there is no shame or wrong in that fact as such. As a matter of fact, the Lord created us with strong sexual desires. But, but those desires were given us in order we should use them for the purpose that God intended. And he gave them to be used within the bonds which he set he gave them so that we could give physical expression to our wholehearted and absolute and total commitment to our husband or wife. He gave them so that we could give expression to our unity in marriage and rejoice in it. See, that is why marriage is the only context, the only place in which the sexual relationship, the sexual union is proper. Remember, sex, all sex outside of marriage is a lie. Let me repeat it. All sex outside of the bond of marriage is a lie. You ask why? Well, because in such sexual encounters, people say with their bodies what they do not say and are not prepared to say with their hearts and minds and other actions. Sex outside of the bond of marriage, refuses to say, I give myself to you without reservation. It does not say, God has joined us together. It does not say, I love you. Rather, what it says is, I love me. I love myself, and I mean to satisfy myself. Well, if then the heart of marriage is a love that sacrifices self for the other, is selfless, see, then you understand also that selfishness of whatever kind, be it on the part of the husband or of the wife, are this selfishness that undermines the unity of the marriage relationship. Anytime and in any way, one of the partners says, me first, whether it be on a question of how money is spent or time. 
Whether it's on the question of how work is shared in the home or how their time is spent away from the home. Anytime the me-first attitude crops up, the marriage unity is threatened, is denied. Then the old nature wants to dominate. Then self-love wants to prevail. And see, that is what shacking up is really all about. It is an expression of marriage without the bond of marriage. That is, without complete and total commitment to each other. It is a marriage without self-denial. It is a marriage without selflessness. It is man's counterfeit, counterfeit of what God ordained. It is an exercise in self-love, pure and simple. Remember, all sexual sin is an expression of self-love. It is always and first and foremost interested in satisfying, in gratifying self. And our Lord said, a lustful looking, a lustful desiring of someone not your wife or your husband, see, that is adultery that exposes your love for self. It betrays your old nature's power in the sexual arena of your life. Remember, the Lord God condemns all unchastity. So the Bible teaches. So we confess. And now we understand why that is so. See, if it is indeed true that the sexual relationship is the most intimate and the most fundamental way in which a man and a woman can express their deep and total commitment to each other, then it follows that all sex outside of marriage, including the looks, the talk, the thoughts, and the desires which incite to unchastity, all of it, stands condemned because all of it means to serve the exact opposite purpose. All of it is an expression of a person's deep and total commitment to self, to a love of self that is as corrupting as it is corrupted. It says... I do not really care about my husband or my wife and what this, my unchastity, does to him or her. It says, I do not care about the person I may one day marry. It says, I want to use the other person now to satisfy myself now. Murder, it could be said, is the ultimate expression of self-love. A self-love that is unto death. 
think only of abortion, euthanasia, and so-called mercy killing. All of them reveal how very barbaric our society has become, how very enslaved it is to self-love, choosing as it does for an egotistic sense of the quality of life to violate the sanctity of life. Well, now, if the violation of the sixth commandment is the ultimate expression of self-love, why then the violation of the seventh commandment is a fundamental expression of self-love. Here lies its origin, its foundation. And now look again at our culture, at the society in which we live. Note how obsessed it is with sex, how it approves and encourages and applauds sexual sin. Oh, there is not only premarital sex and adultery, there is also homosexuality and bestiality and sodomy, not to speak of pornography, even child pornography. You cannot fail to recognize that our society is consumed with and driven by and enslaved to all manner of unchastity, all of it rooted in self-love. No, don't be deceived. Sexual perversion, homosexuality and all that is born of it, it is not a question of one's nature. One is not typically born with it. This is a modern-day lie, a lie foisted on us by Satan and such as serve him. Rather, it is evidence of the Lord God giving people up to the evil lusts of their hearts. It is God's judgment upon a self-indulging people that blithely boastfully, blatantly rebels against his word. The Apostle Paul tells us, God, listen carefully, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring, the degrading of their bodies among themselves. Ah, you see, they had not been afraid to exchange the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie, precisely as it happens again today. They worshipped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, writes the Apostle, I ask, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, to shameful lusts. And how far does that go? Listen, their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and, ah yes, and receiving in their own person the due penalty for their error. Sexual diseases are born of sexual sins, says the Lord. And so I come to the third point. Christ redeemed it. See, I must now warn against a serious danger. The danger that we think that it is all out there. In the world, in society, the sin against the seventh commandment. But, but if we were to say that, we would deceive ourselves. And the truth would not be in us. If we say that we have not sinned, writes the Apostle John, we make God out to be a liar. I see. We have to learn to recognize this sin. We have to be sorry for it and to hate it and to flee from it. I see. We have to run away from everything the Lord forbids, from everything which in any way would incite unchastity. We must learn to recognize and to confess that the sinful inclination to love ourselves in the sexual dimension of our lives runs deep. That is part of our sinful nature. The very same inclinations which have enslaved the world, which hold the world in the grip of death, live in us also. See, that is why we must be sorry for and hate and run away from it. We need instead to cultivate wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. Also, in this part, of our lives. We need to convert, daily convert, also herein. And see, for that we need to go to Christ, the Redeemer of our life. We need to ask Him to cut this sin out of our life. We must ask Him to fill us with His Spirit, to teach us by His Word and Spirit to delight in what the Lord desires and to say of marriage as God ordained it, it is good. It is my choice. It is my delight. With Lord 32, remember, we confess that Christ by his spirit is renewing us to be like himself. Such is his sure promise to us. He will redeem us from sin in every part of our life. 
He will make us new creatures, give us a new nature. Also here, you see, where sin strikes so deep and does so much damage, also here, there is redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The Catechism confesses that so beautifully. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, it says, body and soul. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, precisely in the context of the fact that some of the members of that congregation were involved in sexual sin. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? Are you see that? That is the good news for Christians. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Christ. And see, He, He is the one who can work the miracle that is required to turn us so that our orientation is not toward self and our thoughts are not first and last and always focused on self. He is the one who can lead us to become selfless, who can make us Christ-like also in our marriage. He is the one who can set us free from slavery to sexual sin and give us the desire to sacrifice ourselves for our spouse. And see, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we have both the duty and the power to obey the seventh commandment. Because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we have the duty and the power to hold marriage in honor, to detest thoroughly all unchastity and married or single to live decent and chaste lives. Because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, we have the duty and the power to offer our sexuality also in holiness to the Lord. Ah yes, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, God gives us the gift of marriage, which we may enjoy again as He intended for His praise and glory, for our joy and happiness. Praise the Lord. Amen.